0: Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, some upgrades to asthma care in Minnesota, a commentary on the upcoming solar eclipse, and an exclusive chat with the Gophers' new softball coach. But first, despite continuing efforts to reverse the trend of rising opioid-related deaths, the epidemic worsened last year, prompting President Trump to call the crisis a national emergency. I recently spoke with Health Partners Addiction Medicine Specialist Dr. Ann Pilkus about this alarming trend, what it means for Minnesota and the country.
1: So we're seeing we're seeing trends of less prescribing, less prescribing of opioids. Like we've the primary care world, and I think we the doctors have sort of gotten the message. But the deaths yet the deaths keep rising, and so uh, we are pretty sure that that is related to heroin because once people get sort of cut off, they can move to heroin if they're addicted to painkillers. They move to heroin and the synthetic opioids, which sometimes people use, heroin addicts use because they want to, but sometimes it's it's sort of laced into their into their heroin, so they don't know they're using it, or it's sold as as they think they're getting, you know, an oxycodone, and actually it's fentanyl um, in, in a powder. Um, so it's, it's sort of a, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, sometimes they know they're getting it and sometimes they don't.
0: Well, this probably isn't a fair question, but uh, what is the solution in, in trying to reverse this trend? I mean, if we're, if we're getting the, the prescriptions going down, that's a step in the right direction, obviously, but it, it very clearly more needs to be done. What else can we do?
1: Right. Well, I think there's there. It's a, a. It has to be a multi-pronged approach, right? So um, I think expanding access to treatment is one, um, and uh, you know, allowing people to utilize Medicaid funding for treatment, I think, is a huge, a huge um, issue, um, and allowing people to keep their Medicaid um, to, to allow treatment. Um, for opioid use disorders, um, expanding access to medication-assisted treatment. So, medica- opioids, uh, addiction to opioids. Fortunately, are one of the one of the addictions that we do have some really good medications that can help with addiction. Unfortunately, they're one of the least accessible types of treatments. Um, so, helping to expand um, access to medication-assisted treatment. At Health Partners, we've got a we've got a couple. Um, a couple initiatives that we're working on right now, but um, one of them is that we're trying to expand our, um, our physician, the, the numbers of physicians that will prescribe the kind of medications that people use for treatment of opioid addiction. So we've increased our, our doctors from probably like three or so to about 11 now doctors within the health partner system that will prescribe medications for opioid addiction. Um, the other thing is um, the um, expanding access to the medication called naloxone. So, um, so naloxone is an overdose reversal agent. So, um, it's kind of you think of it as kind of like an EpiPen. You keep it around if you need it, but it, but it um, will reverse the effect of an opioid overdose. So, getting that in the hands of anybody that we think will need it, um, including first responders, police, sheriff's departments, um, anybody in um, anybody that is living with somebody that they think might be an opioid addict. Um, so, getting that into the hands of people that need it is, is imperative too. So. Expanding access to treatment, expanding access to, to the kinds of treatments that work and then making sure that people that are using don't actually die so that we can get them to the treatment. I think those are those are a couple of the steps that we could take um, to help start to curb to help curb this
0: epidemic. And what would you say out there to listeners that either have family members that are struggling with this or uh, just as a sort of word of caution to people that uh, that maybe, if they're still out there, are not aware of the dangers here of, of what kind of a road these opioids can lead you down? What would your message to them be?
1: Well, I think there's two messages. One is for people who are on, on pain medicines that are either prescribed from their doctors or not prescribed, and they they kind of think they have it under control or something, I would, I would just be very wary because it's a very, very slippery slope. And, and um, the more we start finding out about, about opioids with chronic pain, the less available they're gonna be. Um, and so I would urge you to talk to your doctor to try and get yourself off of them if you can. And then the people that are using heroin or other um, you know illicit opioids, um, I would say if you're gonna use opioids um, it's, it, it's, much, it's a much different landscape than it was even a year or two ago, and it's much, much, much more dangerous. Um, never use alone. Use, uh, have naloxone or Narcan with you whenever you use, and get the help that you need because it's available. There, there, it's, sometimes it's difficult to get the medications that you, you um, need or to get into treatment, but it's not impossible. If, if you need help, reach out for help, and somebody, we will help you.
0: As somebody who uh, I'm assuming must see the the ill effects of these overdoses and, and drug abuse day after day on a daily basis, uh, how do you how do you stay optimistic that it's a, a, a fixable problem?
1: Oh, because I see people get better. I really do. I, if, if people didn't get better, I wouldn't. I couldn't do this. It's you know. It's if they if they reach out for help treatment is, is, is effective. I think that's one of the big myths that, that out there about addiction in general is that it's an untreatable disease, and that's just untrue in all shapes and forms. We've got many, many behavioral health and medication sorts of treatments that are really effective right now. It's just getting people to them. I think that is, that is the difficult part. So that's why I do it.
0: Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Ann Pilkus, Addiction Medicine Specialist at Health Partners. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The first ever generic asthma inhaler is now available and new asthma training is being required of all Minnesota coaches. MNN's Tasha Radel has the latest.
2: That's right, Scott. Let's talk about the new generic asthma medication first. But before we dive in... Let's go over numbers. Did you know 1 in 16 children and 1 in 13 adults currently have asthma in the state? That adds up to around 393,000 Minnesotans. So as you can see, the need for generic inhalers is huge and will likely save Minnesota families hundreds of thousands of dollars. Joining me now is Sarah Gruen, a clinical pharmacist with Health Partners. Sarah, this is really welcoming news for asthma sufferers and their families.
3: Yeah, so we're really excited because this is um, the first generic controller medication for asthma that's available. Um, It is a combined medication that has uh, two medications in it that help patients um, who have asthma control their symptoms. So unlike other medications that help kind of quickly relieve symptoms, this is a medication that's going to provide them better long-term control of their asthma. And previously, the uh, medications in this class were only available as brand-name medications, and they were typically around three dollars to $400 per prescription. So this is a really nice cost-effective option for patients who have asthma.
2: And any idea on how much this would save the average consumer?
3: Yeah, so the other inhalers that are branded are currently running between three dollars and $400, and this new generic medication um, is around $50 to $90, depending on uh, pharmacy strength insurance policy.
2: Is a generic inhaler similar to the name brand inhalers.
3: So this medication is a dry powder inhaler, which is somewhat um, a different device than the other inhalers. Um, So patients would need to make sure that they talk to their pharmacist about how to use the medication and also make sure that um, if they are switching between medications, that they're um, looking to see how well their symptoms are controlled to make sure that it's working as well.
2: And what took so long to get a generic version of this inhaler? Was it due to patents and different things like that?
3: Yeah, a lot of the medications that are currently on the market still are under patent protection. This is a unique situation where Teva Pharmaceuticals um, came out with the brand name medication, which is Air Duo, but simultaneously released the generic version as well to make um, a more cost-effective option available for consumers.
2: I understand you're a medication therapy management pharmacist. Can you explain what exactly this means?
3: Yeah, so my role at Health Partners is working with patients and going over their medications, making sure that they're safe and effective, but also affordable. And I think that's something we're seeing patients struggle with more and more with high deductible policies and the rising cost of medications. So one of the areas that we commonly work with patients on is asthma because the cost of a lot of the controller medications are so high. So this is often something that we talk to patients about and looking for more cost-effective alternatives. So it's nice to finally have something that we're able to offer to our patients in this, um, in this realm.
2: And is it pretty fair to say that uh, asthma is a very, very, uh, very common, I guess, ailment that you folks treat?
3: Yes, it's a very common um, condition that we're treating, and especially because it typically requires multiple inhalers um, for patients to manage. And and symptoms can change based on our climate and allergies. And um, so there's a lot of factors that go into it that make pharmacists ideal to talk to patients about how to use their medications, making sure they're using them correctly, making sure the technique of their inhalers is good so that they're getting the medication effectively um, and also screening for any potential side effects. So it's a condition where pharmacists can really make a difference.
2: Thanks, Sarah. Let's switch gears a bit. Something new being implemented this school year asthma training for high school coaches. Here to explain the training is Kelly Ross with the State Health Department. Kelly, can you tell us a little bit more about this new program?
4: Yeah, I sure can. Um, The Minnesota Department of Health and the Minnesota State High School League, um, in partnership, work together to create content for their online um, training module for asthma. And that's um, located on the league's portal. And um, all um, coaches across Minnesota that coach between the kids grade, grades 10 through 12 um, need to complete this training before their 2017-2018 sports season.
2: What is the goal of this training? The
4: goal of this training is to, to um, prepare coaches so that they're able to recognize symptoms of asthma, understand what um, symptoms look like, and then if, if a student athlete is having an asthma attack, how to respond to that and um call in um, additional backup like 911 if that is necessary.
2: Is there anything that triggered this new requirement?
4: Well, Minnesota um, has some data um, that we received from our Minnesota Student Survey in 2016, and we found that 58% of Minnesota youth in middle and high school with, with asthma participate in club and community sports. And 57% of youth who don't have asthma compared to 57% of youth who don't have asthma. Um, so, on a team of 20 athletes, there's likely to have you know two to three players that have asthma. So there are kids out there that are are, are participating in um, varsity sports that have asthma. But we really want we really want coaches to be aware that they have a kid on their team that has asthma, they understand, um, you know, about, you know, what asthma is, what are the symptoms, what they can do to prevent an asthma attack, and if there is an asthma attack, what they, what they need to do and how to respond to it, um, and then call in 911 if necessary.
2: Thanks again to both of my guests, Sarah Gruen, a clinical pharmacist with Health Partners, and Kelly Ross with the State Health Department. Back to you, Scott.
0: Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Thousands are headed this weekend to the center of the U.S. to see Monday's total solar eclipse, Minnesotans among them, and m Bill Werner is sad that he's not going. I think the coming total solar eclipse is perhaps in danger
5: of being eclipsed by our feverish preparations for it. I really would have liked to see it in person, one of the limited number of opportunities in a person's lifetime. But then I started thinking about all the thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of spectators converging on that narrow band of predicted totality. From the edge of the deep south, past the capital of country music, through America's Bible Belt, where those of faith will marvel at what God hath wrought, sweeping across the high plains where the buffalo still roam, and out on through Oregon, where presumably the sun's disappearance is judged as just another example of oneness with the universe. All those people, a few fortunate enough to actually live on the line of demarcation, but most ferried in on endless streams of SUVs, sedans, campers, and an occasional VW microbus. Minnesotans, among the best marketers in the world, have come up with a better solution. Well, actually, homegrown Sun Country Airlines was offering an eclipse round-day flight from MSP to Grand Island, Nebraska, ground zero in the Midwest for the moon's obfuscation of the sun. Included in the fair is transport to and from a Gem Over the Prairie event at a local museum, music, presumably the soundtrack from Cosmos, food trucks, and a countdown to the start of totality. Now, instead of that, I was thinking about finding a nice little 1960s vintage diner on Main Street in Grand Island with a waitress named Libby, and ordering the Eclipse breakfast special, which, of course, would be, you guessed it, one egg sunny side up with a glop of dark stuff over the yolk. Now, that goo would not actually be oil, of course, but it would represent all the petroleum expended in the rush to this once-in-a-lifetime experience. One of my colleagues also suggested for dessert I could order Corona donuts. I think I've gone off course from the path of totality. We certainly know what an eclipse is, unlike our distant ancestors, some of whom were so terrified by the sun going away in the middle of the day that they literally dropped dead in their tracks. I almost wish we did not know what an eclipse is, as we still do not know about so many other things in the universe. Essayist Annie Dillard once wrote about the total eclipse that she witnessed in Washington State. The sky snapped over the sun like a lens cover. The hatch and the brain slammed. The hole where the sun belongs is very small, a thin ring of light marked its place. There was no sound. The eyes dried, the arteries drained, the lungs hushed. There was no world. We were the world's dead people, rotating and orbiting around and around, embedded in the planet's crust, while the Earth rolled down. Only an extraordinary act of will could recall us to our former living selves and our contexts in matter and time. We had, it seemed... Loved the planet and loved our lives, but could no longer remember the way of them. We got the light wrong. It was all over. My father and I once stopped to view a partial eclipse in Minnesota on the way back from the hardware store pulling into the parking lot of a commercial building next to the railroad tracks and furtively peering at the missing sliver of the sun through a square of darkened plastic. I remember thinking, the light is different somehow, even the wind has calmed. But that might have only been in my mind. I didn't say it, but I think if I would have said, I wish we were somewhere where we could see the whole thing. His response might have been, Compared to the galaxy or to the small piece of the universe that we know, to say nothing of the cosmos. New Brighton, Minnesota, and Grand Island, Nebraska, to a very high degree of precision, down to a 100 or maybe even a 1,000 decimal places, are in exactly the same place. Bill Werner on the Minnesota News Network.
0: Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. There's new leadership in the Golden Gopher softball program as Jamie Traxell takes over for Jessica Allister. Allister left the Gophers last month for her alma mater, Stanford, after leading Minnesota to new heights in softball. Traxell had served previously at North Dakota State. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with Traxell for Minnesota Matters.
6: First of all, let's talk about what a whirlwind this has been, just in the last few weeks, uh, coming from Iowa State to the University of Minnesota, welcome to the Twin Cities. What, what has it been like for you?
7: Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. It's, you know, coming back home always feels good. Um, it's my home state, so unbelievable opportunity to be part of this university and to take over this program.
6: Tell us a little bit about your background. Your hometown is Duluth. Uh, w- you know, when did you start playing softball and kind of your coaching trek uh, to get here to be the head coach of the Golden Gophers?
7: Um, I actually grew up as a multi-sport athlete. My earliest memories are of playing racquetball, to be honest with you, um, and then basketball, softball, tennis, along along with softball, went to St. Cloud State, knew I wanted to coach, I was kind of the little girl and remember the Titans, and um, went up to North Dakota State as a graduate assistant when we were Division Two, and um, we had some success at Division Two. went through a transition period five years to go Division One and then had a lot of success as a Division I program, seven of eight years being in the NCAA tournament with a trip to Super Regionals. I had had some opportunities to to move on from NDSU, didn't find the right one until Iowa State called just 15 months ago, and um, I decided to leave NDSU. The only reason to do that was to go build a top 20 program and being from the North, from our success to Minnesota's um, people-build programs, so I knew it was possible. And so I went to Iowa State to build the top 20 program, and I was there to settle, I was settling in, and then you know Minnesota called, and and kind of the rest is history. But it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up for all the obvious reasons.
6: You built that North Dakota State program, and they uh, made some headlines by upsetting Oklahoma, the team I think right. that eventually won it, right? Uh, they won it last year and this year. Um, um, Take me through that stretch. You're at Iowa State, you're watching your old team have success. And now this job opportunity and you were familiar with the Gopher program that that that's quite a a bunch of events there, huh?
7: Yeah, I'm not sure I saw much of the playoffs, including that. Um, you know, I was out recruiting for the first time instead of being part of postseason play and you know, that's not that enjoyable. It's good motivation to keep working hard at what you're doing, to to build your program to get to that level and, and here at Minnesota it's been built to that level and beyond. So this this isn't a rebuild by any means. It's, it's already been built. It's, it's a program that's primed to win championships right now, and, and those are the standards and expectations of the players and the coaching staff that's here.
6: Yeah, take me through that, too, where when you went to Iowa State, you knew there'd be uh, you know a rebuild time, a, a chance to go out, and it might take a few years, to now you inherited a team that finished the year ranked number one in the country last year, and uh, obviously there's pieces in place, so to speak. So what's the difference, or is there a difference, in terms of how you'll go about coaching a program where you're going to build it to a program to maintain and try to continue to, to grow?
7: I'm not sure you compare the two programs for those we're at. I would probably draw on where we were at at North Dakota State, uh, where you're talking about winning championships. That's how you recruit. And when you're looking and talking to kids, can you help us win on a regional, national level? Those kids are here. Their expectation and the standards and the vision and aspirations are to be playing in June, which is to be on the biggest stage that we have in our sport, which is the Women's College World Series. And so when you're talking about winning championships, you're talking about greatness and Um, you know, I don't know that that matters where you're at, but that's where this program is at. And so we'll, we'll keep it to Minnesota. But, um, you know, I I think when you're, when you're used to winning and you want to win in, in your blue collar and you work hard and you don't want to, and there's no excuses and, um, you just put one foot in front of the other and, and trust the journey, embrace the process, you know, that language is the same, no matter where you're at. And I think regardless, if you're listening to Tom Brady, to Tim Tebow, to whoever, you know, you're your passion is for your sports team or a sports hero. You know, great players always speak the same language. It just sounds a little bit different sometimes. You
6: guys at NDSU played Minnesota every year, so you're familiar certainly with some of the players and the, the program. Um, how have the current players that are returning, uh, you know, bought in, so to speak, to, to a new coach?
7: You know, it's change, and it's not, doesn't have to be better or worse, it's just change, and there's an adaptation period that comes with that. Um, these, these kids have been impressive, to say the least, and um, but really it speaks to the culture that was built and you know when you do it right and people build programs and you know that it's always bigger than one person and that's a tribute to what was built and how it was built previously by the previous coaching staff.
6: Coaching style what would you how would you say are you a players coach are you uh, are you, will you are you a yeller or a screamer kind of mm. take me through your style as a head coach.
7: Um, I'd probably say I'm a player's coach overall, um, at different times you have to wear different hats and you're always the, you're always the coach that your players force you to be, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, you know, some, sometimes you're expected to be a one, one way and sometimes you need to be another way. And I think being a little bit flexible with that is important, but you know, I'm, I'm probably a motivator. I want to build people up. I want them to believe they're better than they are. I believe that you're always building, preparing and training a mentality, um, you know, and I also believe that you're part of something bigger than yourselves and yourself. And we always tell them like, it's bigger than you and it's bigger than us. Be grateful for your opportunity, um, but let's work hard. Let's be the hardest working program in the country and let's make sure that we overachieve and not underachieve and go make a lot of people really uncomfortable.
6: Very good. Welcome to uh, Minneapolis. Welcome back to your home state. It's great to have you here.
7: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: That's Jamie Traxel and Mike Grimm. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN Station.